Hello everybody, I am Lucia Matuonto and welcome to the Relatable Voice podcast, a talk show where my guests and I talk about relatable everyday situations, books, and the environment we live in. Remember to subscribe and follow the podcast on social media so you can be notified when a new episode is available. Let's begin. Welcome back to the Relatable Voice podcast. On today's episode, the RV is on the road again to Minneapolis to speak to Laura DeVore. Laura is a published author and her book is entitled Darkness Was My Candle, An Odyssey of Survival and Grace. Welcome to the RV. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. Laura, while you live in Minneapolis, you've lived in so many places. And you said something I relate a lot, which is that you consider yourself a global citizen, deeply connected to many places. So what are some of these places you feel so connected to? Well, Minneapolis, I have felt connected to for many years, even though I moved away for a while. And I actually lived in Washington, D.C. and Tucson for a while for for work. But I kept I just keep coming back here. And I'll tell you a funny story. I was in Minneapolis. I was living in South Dakota many years ago, and I ended up having to have an emergency surgery. And I was rushed to the hospital, had surgery, and I kept having this weird deja vu feeling that I'd been to that hospital before, but I'd never been in St. Paul, Minnesota before, nor had I um, been, been to that hospital. And I finally called my mother's oldest sister, who was still living, and I said, Aunt Ethel, where was I born? And she, she said, St. Paul, Minnesota. And, and I said, do you know where? And she said, somewhere near the Capitol. And I was looking out my window at the Capitol. And, and I felt like a homing pigeon. I felt like every time I would walk out of my room, because they had me up and walking around like they used to after surgery, that I wanted to go to the nurse's station. There was something in the nurse's station for me, and it didn't make any sense. And one day I asked the nurses if they had a um, department where they had records, and, the, and if I could go there. And she told me how to get down to the basement, to the records department. And they found my mother's records. And it turns out that the floor I was on was the had been the maternity floor when I was born. And the room that I was in was next door to my mother's. And the one in newborn intensive care unit um, was now the nurse's station. Oh, my gosh, I'm, I can't believe that, Laura. And when I eventually moved to not long after that to Minneapolis, I felt like I'd come home for the first time. I was supposed to be there. Yeah, I had a very, I had had a series of very large ovarian cysts that were the size of a grapefruit. And this particular one was wrapped around my um, appendix. And so that's why they had to take it out. Wow. That's something that we cannot explain. Right. Right. And how I knew that, how I picked that up, I have no idea. Even when I've left the Twin Cities, I always end up coming back. That's amazing. And Laura, can you tell us about your journey? Sure. So I grew up in 1947, or I was born in 1947. 
And my mother had grown up in very, very dire circumstances during the depression and was raised by older siblings. My grandmother became catatonic and just shut, shut down and couldn't even take care of the brand new baby, nor my mother. Uh, or the older siblings and the oldest, my Aunt Ethel had to walk into town and get a job or they all would have starved, which left the care of their mother and the children and my, and my mother who was three uh, to the boys and they just fell apart. So there was rampant abuse. It was just too much for them. My mother got her first pair of shoes by climbing out of the window and having sex with a farm hand and had always been incestuous, at least with one of her brothers for sure, and perhaps both of them. And she made a living as a prostitute um, from the time she left the farm where they had lived. And so I was born into that life, unwed. She was an unwed mother. And she had no capacity to care for a child. I think her own development had stopped at age three. And she was also an alcoholic and a drug addict. She sold me for the first time as a pro in prost into prostitution. Of course, today we call it trafficking um, at age nine. I eventually, after a very near fatal suicide attempt was taken away from her. And then I was in a series of foster homes and that was pre-child protection years when they didn't have um, certified foster homes. So they, I went to one placement after another and I, I believe people did as, as, as well as they could. And I certainly got something out of each, each placement. I eventually, I'll fast forward, I eventually um, went off to college because of a writing scholarship. And I was so ill-prepared for college. I had been homeless for the month before I went to college. And I didn't even know I was supposed to register for a dorm. And I got there with a suitcase and there, um, there weren't any. And I remember stepping out of the line and saying, I guess I'll try to come back next year. And the Dean of Girls happened to be standing nearby. And she said, come with me. I think I, I might have a solution. And she took me to the college counselor who found me a place to live. Anyhow, I ended up living in four or five different places that school year. and. I was also working part-time at a hospital and was being stalked by a respiratory therapist who was at least at least 50 years old. And he would pull me into the, into the janitor's closet. And then he started stalking me in the halls at school and started showing up at my elevated, my L, um, L station. This was in Chicago. And so I quit my job and I thought maybe he, he would stay away from me that way. And he had pulled, tried to pull me into a car one night and I was terrified. And had it not been for a businessman coming down the steps who scared him off, I don't know what would have happened. So I quit my job and I found out that they were closing the dorms and I had nowhere to go. Because oh. back in those days, um, young people, when they left the foster care system or the system, there weren't any transitional programs like there are more and more in the United States now. And so I did something really stupid, which had been an old childhood default. I took a, a handful, I think it was aspirin or Salmonex, I don't even know what it was. And then I thought that was really stupid, Laura. 
and I made myself throw up. And then I went and found the dorm mother and told her I needed help in figuring this out. And she told me she'd be happy to. And she ended up deciding that even though I'd made myself throw up, she wanted me to be checked out medically. And she said I could come back and we'd figure out what next. And I went to the ER in a taxi that she had ordered. And they, um, even though I was fine medically, they told me they were going to send me across town to a place called Illinois State Psychiatric Institute um, that had a brand new um, ward for young adults. And I got there and they were doing, I didn't know this till many years later that they were doing experimental drug research and they wouldn't let me out. Mm. And I kept thwarting their research because I wouldn't take the medication. I kept, I kept spitting the pills out and then they gave me liquid Thorazine and other liquid medications or gave me shots and I ran away. Eventually they had me committed to the worst state hospital in the Illinois system. And had it not been for a courageous nurse named Dr. Sidney Krampitz, who at that time was a graduate student who fought for my relief release and it took her 15 months, I, I would have surely died there. Many One person after another has told me because people just were not released in those days. And the, the system was so, so unhealthy. And, and I also want to say, you know, after doing a lot of research and refinding Sidney Krampitz, we went back there and we did a lot of research. And one of the things that touched me so much when I read the research is I, I was able to move into this place of compassion for the attendants there and the doctors and nurses because they were so short-staffed and nobody trained them. No, and, and they were all afraid. So they were like prison guards. And so it was a very, very dysfunctional sick system. And I eventually was able to get out because of Dr. Krampitz and went back to school and had an amazing experience at one point with a homeless person. Um, and when I was writing my book, I looked, I, I don't know why, it's like sometimes my fingers would just take over and I just follow my intuition. And I remembered her name from all those years. And so I, I just typed in um, woman named Lee Goldie. I had the wrong, the name slightly wrong. It was Godet. Um, Lee Goldie, homeless person selling art in Old Town Chicago. And I put the dates. And she came up. Turns out she was the most famous outside artist in Chicago. Oh. And my life has been one of people showing up at the right time. And I call them angels wearing the face of compassion and skin. And Lee was one of those. I had just learned um, early in the, earlier in the day at school that my mother had been in a horrible fire and nearly burned to death. And I, I, I felt like my life depended on never seeing her again and that I hated her. And I got home from school and the song, Both Sides Now, I've looked and the refrain that sort of pierced my heart was I've looked at love from both sides now, from win and lose, and still somehow it's love's illusion, I recall. I really don't know love at all. And I started sobbing and I had this epiphany and I realized that I really loved my mother. And that I, that I couldn't help her and I couldn't save her. And I was terrified she'd die before she knew that I loved her. And she wasn't allowed visitors at that point. So then I had gone to, to Old Town to get a copy of the album. And Lee, Go, 
Godet was standing on the other side of the street selling art. And there was something that was just, I was just drawn to her like a moth to a flame. And it turns out, not just with me, but with everybody, she would, she would ask them to tell you about herself because she'd only sell her art to people she believed deserved it. So I ended up stay, stay, standing on that street corner with her all night till dawn. And periodically we'd go inside the brownstone she was standing in front of and get warm in the entryway. And then we'd go back on the street and it was snowing and it was beautiful. And I told her everything. I told her about figuring out that I loved my mother, that I'd been in the state hospital, everything. And she looked at me and she said something so important. She said to me, you be a good girl and love your mother. Some mothers can't love. They just can't. Some mothers can't even be around their children, but that's their personhood. But the soul, the soul always loves. So you keep loving your mother because that's about your soul. So beautiful. Thank you. And I, I share that story because so many people um, marginalize and write off homeless people. And, and she gave me an incredible gift. And then later, um, a few years ago, I was actually able to, I found out they were doing a documentary of her. And she had become Chicago's most famous outside artist. And that documentary has been out now. And I got interviewed for the documentary because Capra Fleming, who had done the documentary, wanted um, me to say what, what Lee had told me, in part because it turns out that Lee had a child that she'd left and they don't know whether it was a horrible divorce or what happened. And um, that child before Lee died, came back into her life. And she it was a baby, an infant in arms when Lee left. But she read about her mother in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. That's how famous this woman became. And, and so Capra felt like her daughter needed to hear what her mother had said to me. Because, of course, Lee was talking about herself, not just my mother. Exactly. So I've had a, a life of lots of angels wearing the face of compassion, as I said, in skin. And I could tell story after story, and all of them are in the book. Mm -hmm. But I, um, the other thing that, that I feel is different about my book is it's not just about trauma. It's also about what saves us. It's, it's about surviving what some people think is the unspeakable and, and grace that came into my life again and again through these individuals. And also the transformation that occur, the spiritual transformation, a profound tr transformation, which in some ways is still ongoing. Um, but I'm, I'm living an incredible life, a luminous life that most people can't imagine, particularly with someone with the kind of um, trauma that I suffered. Yes. Where do you think your strength comes from, Laura? You know, I think it, in part it comes from I think it comes from the very first person who ever told me they loved me, a woman named Dale Foss. And she was a neighbor who I only knew briefly. I had had, my mother had been gone for days on end. I was nine and I had already um, had a suicide and been sold to a man several times. And some neighborhood kids were teasing me and they ran into our apartment building and they um, closed the door to our apartment on me and the upper part of the door was glass 
and I was pushing to get in and the glass shattered. So I fell through it. One of the, all the kids ran away, except one girl who, who brought me, it was luckily it was only a block away to the freestanding emergency room and hundreds of stitches later and um, the bill and a note in my pocket. I am sobbing on the way home, not because of what I've just gone through, but because I know I'm going to get, get a beating when I get home, when my, if my mother is there because of the mess in the hallway. And I walked into the hallway and there was a man up there, the, Dale's husband, and he was putting in a new window. And he said, Dale heard the screaming and saw the blood going up to the ER. So she cleaned everything up and sent me to the hardware store. And she's making chocolate chip cookies and lunch for you. So you go on upstairs. And that's how I met her. And I only knew her for a couple of months. But the day she was moving away, I fell apart. Because at that point, I didn't, I'd never been told I, I was loved. I didn't even know what love was. And I, I felt like an alien who'd come to this planet. And I couldn't figure out why on earth anyone would want to live here. And as I'm sobbing and begging her not to leave me, she pulled me into her arms and just kept wiping my tears and rubbing my back. And she kept murmuring to me, I love you. You're such a good girl and I love you. And something came alive in me. I, I suddenly had this huge aha moment where I knew that that's why I was here, to learn how to, to receive and to give this thing called love. And the other thing she said to me before she left is she held my face in her hands and made me look at her. And I was very shy about looking directly at people at that point. And she said, you have to learn to take care of yourself better because your mother's too sick and can't care for you. So she gave me a powerful message. And she also said, I would take you with me if I could, but I can't. It wouldn't be legal, but I will never forget you. And she also gave me the message that I should reach out to other people, which I did again and again. And it laid a foundation and this belief that my life was about learning how to love and to receive it. So I think that's one of the ways I survived. You had angels in your life, so many angels. And one of the things that often happens with trauma survivors is the trauma itself sort of eclipses everything else. And one of the things that a spiritual teacher, a Native American teacher named Dahani Oahu did years ago for me, is she told me that I needed to find the joy markers, go back in time and look at the joy markers for me. She said they were like pop beads that had come apart. I don't know if you remember the old fashioned pop yeah, beads. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And um, as I did that, I began to celebrate and remember all the love and, and the way people cared for me. But, but trauma, and that was years ago when I was still dealing with the trauma, and that made such a difference. So if there, you have any listeners that, are, that have their own trauma, I highly recommend doing that. And it might have been an elementary school teacher who was one of my angels, or the school librarian, another one or a doctor, or a neighbor. But if you can just find those small, small points in time. You know, the other thing, Lucia, is I, Lucia, I'm sorry, Lucia, is that I didn't know any of them for very long. Mm -hmm. And so often, particularly in the mental health community, and um, the juvenile justice community and social social services, 
people get overwhelmed by people's stories and what's happening to them. And they almost give up thinking that this is too much. This kid's never going to get well. And they stop being present. And what I know is that our presence is medicine and can change the course of a life. Just like all those individuals did in my life. Yeah. I love you, Laura. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Lucia. I love you too. It's so sweet. And Laura, you did some extensive research for this book. Can you tell us more about that? Yes. Um, Well, Sydney Krampets, once I found her again, um, we had an amazing reunion. And then she went back and told me what was happening and why I ended up um, in Illinois State Psychiatric Institute, that they were doing research and that they had sent, and every floor was dedicated to research. And I had been put on a floor with young adults who had no family, which meant that there was no one looking out for me. And we eventually went back to Elgin and we also went to the State Archival Library and did a bunch of research. And what we found is that during that era of history, uh, during the Cold War, we were experimenting on newborns, on um, marginalized people of any kind, Native Americans, African Americans, um, our own military, just to name a few. And, And we were labeled as less desirables. And so then that was how I believe that they justified being able to do the research without consent. Thankfully, that has changed for the most part. But we're, we're in a time in history where there's a reckoning and, and, and anyone that watches the news knows that, st- that everything is coming up to be looked at. And that's happening on a personal level as well as a, a global level. And this is a part of history that, that people need to understand because other we make, otherwise we can make the same mistakes. And of course, we still marginalize people. We're still dealing with those issues. And until we recognize that we're all one, we're all part of a larger body. Once I I had the analogy come to me that our life is really about our soul. And we just inhabit these these, um, temples temporarily, but that's not who we are. And what what I thought about is that we're all being cooked down and boiled down to our essence. So we're all in this big pot of soup. And some people are the carrots and some people the potatoes and some people the onions. Some people are the broth. But every single flavor is absolutely necessary to the whole. Yeah, we are all connected. Absolutely, absolutely. And what do you hope your readers will take away from reading your book? I hope they will feel inspired. Um, I've done what many people have said can't be done in terms of not only working through the, the degree of trauma I had, but now living a luminous life. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean I'm finished because we're never finished. We're always growing and changing. And 
so I want them to take inspiration because if I can do it, anybody can do it. And it's just a particular kind of commitment and learning some skills. The other thing is for any mental health experts that listen to the podcast, I want them to know that mental health has got to change. It's primarily been strongly influenced in more recent years by pharmaceutical companies and by the insurance companies. And the other thing that is no longer a part of of most mental health practices is the integration of spirituality and and psychotherapy, which is essential. Trauma, I think it's always essential. But with trauma, trauma creates an existential crisis. And that's one of those crises where we ask the big questions like, why am I here? Why did this happen? And the only place to find the answers to that is not in the why, but how we get through it and, and how we make meaning. And that's both a spiritual and a psychological issue. And so I also want people to begin to see how critical it is that we begin to merge those disciplines and that that our presence as psychotherapists or as coaches is really the healing agent. You don't have to have the answer. You don't have to fix anything, but your presence can change the course of a life. Yes, I agree completely, Laura. And your life is such an inspiration. Yeah. What are your next goals? <laughs> well, to get this out, this book out to the widest um, audience possible, and to really um, be a change agent to um, once I'm done with the book tour that I'm going to be doing um, throughout the country this, uh-huh. this spring and summer, I uh, would like to start hosting retreats and webinars and trainings so that people can learn some of the steps that can be useful to really becoming trauma-free and to get to the place where I am. So those are some of my goals. And my goals are also to continue to, to do everything I can to stay healthy and vital and um, to continue to unconditionally love myself. And that's probably one of the hardest things that everyone struggles with. And I'm committed to self-care because we can't give from an empty plate. We have to give from our fullness and from our essential self. And there's so many healthcare providers who are burning out yeah. because they don't know that and they don't know how to do that. Yeah. Thank you. And is there a message you would like to leave to our listeners today? Anything that you feel like telling us? You know, despite us going through a very dark time in history, I have incredible hope. And I know there are many people that do. And no matter the degree of your trauma, you can fully heal. And for those who are practitioners or coaches, you need to pay attention to how present you are with people. And if you don't know what that means and know how how to practice presence, there's lots of ways to learn that so that that becomes your go-to and come from. And it's that that's the medicine we need. 
the other the other thing is um, someone um, gave me an incredible gift of a quote, and I want to share it. There is someone somewhere who has a wound that is the exact size of your words. And the poet is Sean Thomas Doherty. And so that if I had a prayer today, that would be my prayer that anyone out there that has a wound that my words have been the, been a sweet balm and the exact size for their wound. Laura, you are so special, incredible, and I couldn't be happier to have you here today. And please let us know how we can find you. Where can our listeners connect with you online? LauraDevore.com is the best place. And then um, there's links to Instagram and other places on, on the website, but they can go to the website There's a lot of good stuff on it, including I uh, had this feeling before Thanksgiving this year that Sydney Krampets wouldn't be around long. And I called her. She was in a rehab center. And I said, Sydney, what do you think about me coming down to visit you? And uh, and, ta and my friend Sandra was going to go with me and, and tape you. She said, I would love that. And she got so excited. And she said, but you got to bring me a copy of the book. And I said, it's not out yet, Sydney. And she said, well, then you have to bring me a paper copy. And I said, why don't you wait till the book is out? And she said, well, you don't know how, how long I'm going to be around. And we interviewed her two days after Thanksgiving. We drove down there the day after. We interviewed her the next morning. And she passed away several weeks later. So there's an interview with her on there. Oh, so yeah. we can listen to her interview Okay, yes, there's a whole gallery and it's on the gallery page at the bottom. Okay. People I've worked with, etc. Wonderful. My book. You can also buy my book. And this was me at age seven. And at that age, I discovered churches and I loved music. And I would I I went to the Catholic Church on Saturdays and sat in the stairwell listening to the choir rehearse to the Methodist church, I think it was on Tuesdays and the Lutherans on Wednesdays. And I felt like something, the divine spirit, God, all that is, the, you know, that which created the world was raining down on me through that music. And that's the other thing that saved me. Oh, so many good stories that happened to you. So Laura, Laura the only thing I want to say is Please come back whenever you want. My, my RV doors are Thank always you. open to you. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Yes. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified when the next one is posted. Please rate this podcast and share it with your friends. Thank you for listening, and remember, relationships don't exist. Relating does. Until next time.